Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans tonight, chapter 8, and we just sort of um, eked our way through the first eight verses of Romans chapter 8 last week. I'd like to say we'll get down to verse 25, but I won't say that. I'll just say I'd like to go down there, and eventually one of these days, hopefully before the return of Christ, we'll actually get through this chapter. I am a member of the Adam family. I didn't say Adam's family. That would be very different. But the Adam family, the family of Adam. We were once in Adam. Speaking to believers here, born-again Christians. You were born naturally in the family of Adam, but you were also born the second time into God's family. It's a new birth, or in the language of our text tonight, an adoption has taken place. You are adopted children of God. And the idea behind the language is that you are placed as an adult son or daughter in the kingdom of God. You become a child of God. Now, we're going to talk about the ramifications of that tonight. Last week, we saw that the first four verses is a description in Christ. It's our position, our description of who we are in Christ, and we really examine that phrase, in Christ. Then we started exploring our differences by contrast, the difference between the believer and the non-believer, or as we called it for fun, the saints and the ain'ts. Right, those are the kind of the two basic divisions, right, of humanity. We still have a further description or a further description showing of differences by contrast. We sort of left off with the unbeliever, but didn't really get into the believer like we want to uh, starting this week. So go back to verse 5. And, you know, we went down to verse 8, but the contrast is interwoven through so many different verses that we have to back up because it describes the natural man, the unsaved man. Then it describes the saved person. And there's two basic descriptions of the person who is saved in Christ. First of all, he's spiritually minded. And then secondly, he's spiritually rewarded. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The Christian, the spiritual man, spiritual person, has a spiritual mind. What that means basically is this. You come to Christ and you notice that you start having new appetites, new desires, new cravings, and a new understanding of those things that you crave. Never before in your life did you want to read the Bible. Did you want to go to church? Did you want to pray? But Once that new nature is imparted and you belong to Christ and you're in Christ, you've got this desire to read the Word every day. What what more does it say? How can I experience more of the presence of God? Hey, what's going on at church tonight? Oh, there's not a Bible study tonight? Oh, man. That hunger, that appetite. And what amazes me is the understanding and the depth of understanding almost instantly of spiritual matters. It has always amazed me how quickly this understanding comes. Uh, There was one young lady in Southern California. It was a hospital that I worked at, St. Joseph's Medical Center in Orange County. She was the secretary up at the desk in the radiology department. She asked me questions. Why do you carry a Bible? What are you into? Where do you go to church? And so I told her about the Lord, and she, I don't want to hear about it. She was kind of callous and hard. But then she'd ask a few more questions, and she was a very religious person. And I remember trying to explain spiritual things to her, and, you know, it's like a big question mark was all over her face. She didn't understand what I was talking about. And, of course, it's like trying to explain a beautiful sunset in New Mexico to someone who's blind. Oh, man, it's beautiful. It's orange and red, and they go, what's orange? What's red? No frame of reference, no faculty to appreciate, no capacity to understand the depth. 
And this went on for weeks and weeks, and finally, out in the parking structure of the hospital, we were walking out there, I walked her to her car, and she kept just saying, I, you know, this is wrong, and what you say is, and what I say is different. And finally, I said, Linda, I know, and you know, you've been fighting the Holy Spirit. I can see it all over you. You're arguing with God, God's Word. You are experiencing right now a tug in your heart. You know this is right. And you know that you should give your life to Christ. You know it can be personal. You've seen other people in this department with their life changed. Why don't you just give it up? Throw in the towel. Right now in this parking structure, you pray and you receive Christ. She just broke down like a baby. She started crying. She goes, you're right, I know, I should. And I, God has been, I have been fighting him. And so she prayed. And it was absolutely astonishing how much she understood as soon as she let Christ in. And of course, the Holy Spirit likes to follow Jesus. So he came in too and started indwelling her and opening up her understanding. Then there was another time. I watched this spiritual mind engage. I was on the Huntington Beach Pier. I went out witnessing. In fact, I took this girl, Linda, to go witnessing. And she goes, oh, I don't want to go do that. I, I feel embarrassed. I said, okay, I'll talk and you stand in the background and just pray. She goes, okay, I can do that. By the end of the evening, we had seen about 11 people commit their lives to Christ. Just people we walked up to and talked to on the pier. So this one gal in the parking lot, I don't know what it is, I'm I called the parking lots or something. I'll meet you in the parking lot after for counseling, by the way. But we were in the parking lot, and I was sharing with this girl, and she was pluralistic in her worldview. There are many roads to God, etc. And she had a lot of questions. And um, as I was sharing, some of it, she understood enough. Yeah, I, I believe there's a God. Yeah, I believe that we're, we have a problem by nature. And uh, so she would acknowledge certain things, but she said, you know, I have so many other questions about God. I couldn't possibly commit my life to Christ tonight when I had so many unanswered questions. Well, I could tell a brush off when I heard one. And I said, I'll tell you what. Do you want to ask some of those questions? Do you want answers for them? She goes, well, yes. And then she said, tell you what. I'll give you my phone number. I'll meet you tomorrow at some neutral location like a restaurant. And I'll bring a list of those questions written out, and I'll ask you them one by one. If you can answer them, then I will follow your Lord. I'll give my life to Christ. I said, I'll tell you what. Let's try something different. Let me counteroffer. You know enough right now to receive Christ, to be saved, and I went over the things that she did know, and she had several other things she did know. I said, tell you what, you pray right now and accept this Lord, Jesus Christ, into your heart. And then we can go through any question you want to here, tomorrow, next week, whatever. But you first pray. This is important enough a decision you shouldn't wait till tomorrow. Because you know how the mind can work. You go away, you justify, oh, free. I'm not going to get together with that nut. So, I said, give me your hands, and we started praying. And again, she just broke down, and she received Christ. She prayed the prayer of, Lord, I'm a sinner. I want to receive you. I want forgiveness. I know this is right. And then I said, okay. And I started explaining what she needs to do as a new believer. Tomorrow, you bring me these questions. In fact, if you've got any right now, let's go over a few. She just shook her head, and she goes, you know what? I don't know what it is. But I think all the questions that I had have been answered. I know it inside. I know this is right. I feel it inside. Not only did I know it intellectually as I went into this and objectively, but it's like something has happened. My heart is different. I don't need to ask those questions. I said, well, here's, here's the phone number. If you ever have questions, come back. It's amazing how the believer, once touched by God, the person once touched by God becomes a believer, has the mind of the Spirit, an insight into spiritual things. And so, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And those who live according to the Spirit 
have their mind on the things of the Spirit. Um, a warning about this, and I know you already know this, but a warning if you're just coming into Christ, if you've recently made a commitment. Once you have this appetite for the things of the Spirit and spiritual understanding, people won't be able to figure you out who knew you before. They know that you're a little different. They know that you're a little weird. You never carried a Bible before. You never wanted to go to church, but what is it? Something's wacky with you. 1 Corinthians talks about the natural man, the man who is by nature apart from supernatural in Christ, the carnal Christian, and then the spiritual person. Paul said the spiritual man is understood, uh, understands all things, but he himself is not understood by any man. They can't figure you out. You're an enigma to them. When I first gave my life to Christ and I went back to my high school, I called my old friends on the phone, I went to visit them, you should have heard their remarks. Man, those drugs really did get to him. You know, finally he snapped. <laughs> He's been working too hard this summer after high school. What happened? What happened is the mind of the spirit is engaged, active. Hunger after spiritual things. Not only is he spiritually minded, he's spiritually rewarded. Verse 6 talks about the spiritual reward now and then later on the spiritual reward in eternity. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. One of the most common experiences when a person comes to Christ is this peace that transcends human understanding. Like this girl on the pier. I don't know what it is. Well, I could have told her it's the peace of God. It's the peace that comes once you're justified, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Being justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Fringe benefit, spiritual reward, peace in Christ. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, that is, living according to the old nature. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Not only do you have peace, you have eternal life. Now, I want to clear something up. When I say eternal life, I don't just mean unending life. I don't just mean chronological existence into eternity. Of course, you have that. But let me tell you something. Every creature, every human has unending life, has eternal life in the sense of living on and on and on. There, you don't cease to exist at death. You are not reincarnated into some other form at death. Your soul lives on. The eternal life the Bible speaks about could be best translated age-abiding life. That is a quality of life, not just a quantity of life, not just on and on and on and next week and next month and two billion years, but a quality of life that begins now. You have eternal life now. The moment you come to Christ, you have eternal life. Jesus said that in John chapter 6. Whoever believes in me has everlasting eternal life. It's a quality of life that begins in the present and will continue on into eternity. And so, to the Corinthians, Paul writes that great, great verse, Though the outward man is perishing... This is good for those of us especially who are going into middle age and we're seeing a little more gray hair and wrinkles every day. We're noticing, you know, the outward man is perishing. We're reminded of that constantly, the little groans and creaks. And... But the inward man, that's the person that has life in Christ, the inward man, is being renewed every single day, day by day. So, verse 10, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
Jesus made a promise. I sometimes wonder about it as I look at believers because I wonder just how much they grab a hold of that promise and experience this. But he said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. More abundantly. That's a quality of life. He didn't say, I have come that they might have bummer. (laughs) And bummer more abundantly. I want to make their lives miserable. And yet so many unbelievers think that's exactly what God wants to do. Cramp your style, give you a headache, make you miserable, put a scowl on your face. And as I look at some who profess to be Christians... I wonder if that's how they understand the text to read. I've got abundant bummer. Amen. (laughs) You've got life. You've got everything, man. You You are rich beyond compare. And I'm talking about specifically spiritual things. Think if God did nothing for you anymore, didn't bless you at all the rest of your life. So what? You're going to heaven. This is the closest you'll ever get to hell. As bad as it gets, whatever trial you may be, oh, you don't know my life. Listen, it's a lot worse for a person who dies without Christ. I don't care if he's living on a nice house on the hill. This is the closest you'll ever get to hell. For the unbeliever, this is the closest they'll get to heaven. That's bad news. You've got life. And Jesus said, life more abundantly. And I've lost my place, so here we are. Now, in verse 11, it would seem to allude not only to the eternal life that we experience now in this present age in our relationship with God on earth, but the eternal life once the body is raised, the resurrection. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus, verse 11, from the dead dwells in you, and he does, that's the point, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. By the way, The word dwell means to come in and make yourself at home. To go inside your house where you have your surroundings and you know it and you feel very comfortable. These are your digs, man. You you hang out here. The kind of relationship God wants is that once he's invited in, he feels very at home around you, inside of you. He feels very welcomed. But the main point of this He will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. At the time of death, the spirit departs the body. We know this because the body is there. It's listless. You can talk to the body all you want. You can say, I miss you. You know, go say hi to Uncle Joe for whatever. But they're not there. It's just a corpse. It's dead. It's inanimate. The soul leaves, departs. In the Old Testament, so often we read in the Psalms and other Old Testament prophets the term Sheol, the grave, that the dead depart and go go to Sheol. The New Testament is the word Hades. Now, unfortunately, we read that and we think Hades means hell. Well, it can mean hell, but it simply means the grave, the place of the departed spirits. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, Hell, or excuse me, Hades, Sheol, depending if you're Old or New Testament, was divided into two compartments. There was a place called Torments, and then there was a place called Abraham's Bosom. In Abraham's Bosom, it was a place of comfort. These were people who died in faith, they're being comforted, but they're not in the immediate presence of God. But in the other part, the other compartment of Sheol, is torments. Now, in the book of Revelation, we see that death and Hades will give up their dead. There'll be the resurrection of the damned or the lost. Prior to that will be a resurrection of the just. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, he emptied the compartment called Abraham's bosom. So when a person dies right now, apart from Christ, goes to the same place, Hades, until the final judgment. 
But the believer in faith doesn't go to Abraham's bosom for comfort. The believer goes directly into the presence of God. There is no soul sleep. You don't cease to exist and you're inanimate and you can't think or speak and etc. You're not present until the resurrection. You are in the presence of God. How do we know that? Because Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, For me to live is, uh, that's Philippians 3. To the Corinthians he said, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now right now I'm present with the body. Here I am. I'm moving. I can control my body. And one day, unless the Lord returns, this body will be in a casket. My spirit will depart. As soon as it does, I'm going to be in the direct presence of God. Now Philippians, Paul said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I would rather depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now we are waiting a resurrection. When you die now and your body is buried, you go into the presence of God. Your spirit does, your soul. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. If you die now, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. You don't get a new body yet. But at the resurrection, which is before the thousand years, before the millennium, there will be a resurrection of the just. I believe it will happen at the rapture of the church. I happen to believe it will be before the tribulation period. The dead in Christ shall rise first. We who remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. At that point, there will be the resurrection, where your body is raised. That which is corruptible will put on incorruption, 1 Corinthians 15. And... uh, We will forever be with the Lord. So that's sort of a synopsis of the resurrection, and it sort of hinted in it, added in verse 11. Now verse 12 and 13 is the duty of the Christian. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit... But if by the Spirit, excuse me, you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Now, I don't want to recap too much, but Sunday we talked a little bit about this, how we need to cultivate this spiritual person, cultivate the new man, new woman in Christ. And we said that it's sort of like a garden that grows, and your old nature is like a weed, and it can just grow out of control. You don't have to plant weeds. You don't go to the nursery and say, yeah, give me a dozen weeds. They'll just come uninvited. Your old nature grows out of control like a weed. You have to pull the weeds and you have to tend the garden. You have to fertilize and tend and cultivate the new person in Christ. It's not a passive thing. It's not a, well, I'm going to let go and let God. No, you are actively cooperating by reading the scripture, obeying what you read, Uh, Things that you know God is not pleased with, you say, I'm going to cut that out of my life by the power of the Holy Spirit and live by the power of the Holy Spirit for him. It's a daily growing. It's a daily process. And just remember, keep in mind, the process is described in chapter 6. What are those four words? Number one, know. You've got to know positionally who you are. Second, reckon or suppose. It's a word of faith. It says, I stand on this as true. That's what reckon means. Third, I present myself. Lord, here's my body today. It's yours. Let my hands be your hands. Let my mouth speak your words. Let my feet go where it will please you the most. And then, obey. All of that will yield to obeying and walking in the Spirit. So it's a process. He describes it here as being led by the Spirit again, just as we read on Sunday in Galatians. Now, just a word on being led by the Spirit. Sometimes people use the term led by the Spirit to speak of their subjective feeling. Well, I really feel led to go do that. Well, how do you know you really are led? Well, because I feel led. Well, what do you mean you feel led? It could be a pizza you had last night. You could be feeling some heartburn or something. Well, it's weird. It's, I'm led. Now, I'm not trying to mock it too much, but, well, I guess I am actually. 
Because I think a lot of people talk about being led by the Spirit, and what they mean is, I want to do something. I really, I'm, you know, I've sort of figured this out on my own, apart from really prayer and waiting on God and looking in the Scripture. But it sounds better if I say, I feel led. The word led means to be conducted. You're following the direction of a conductor. Think of an orchestra. There's all these different instruments. The trumpet section didn't go, I feel led right now to play Herp Alpert and Tijuana Brass solo. Okay. No, he has to follow the conductor. That's what it means to be led. The conductor is giving everybody their tempo and everybody knows their part. It's all written before them. You can't just say, well, I just sort of feel. It has to match the Word of God and I think the counsel of mature believers. You have to see God laying those things out and, as we say, opening doors. But it should always be tested. How do I know I belong to God? Because I'm led by the Spirit. I submit to the conductor. I'm doing what he says. And the best way to do that is to saturate yourself with this book. And as you do, the Holy Spirit will bring it to mind, the principles for your life and leading your life in a way that is honoring to God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. When he says you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, what's he talking about? The law. He's trying to show that you guys have an entirely new way to relate to God. Not a a legalistic way, but a love relationship way. You've been adopted. You're a child. God isn't saying, okay, well, listen, if you do this, 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 and this, then I might let you be my son for a day. You're adopted as a child. Your relationship with God is not one under bondage. Think of the law in the Old Testament. Well, let's even go back to this time period. When the Jews came back from the captivity, they were in Babylon. Remember 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and in three successive campaigns brought the people to Babylon. They lived there for 70 years. When they came back to the land, they were determined to keep every jot and every tittle Those were their words. Every crossing of the T, every dotting of the O. We're going to keep this law. We're going to do what God wants. Why? Because we learned our lesson. We got spanked for 70 years in captivity. Not going to go back there again. It was noble, their hearts. But what happened is they got so into the minutia of the fine points of the law, they sort of neglected the heart of it. And so, it says you're to honor the Sabbath and do no ordinary work on the Sabbath. Okay, now they're back in Israel and they sit around. The rabbis go, but what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to do no work on the Sabbath? And so, in their writings, there are 39 different sections of what don't do any work on the Sabbath specifically means. One of the sections, you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath. That wasn't good enough. Now, we don't want to go back to Babylon. What does it mean to not carry a burden on the Sabbath? You know, I think anybody knows what that means. This is not a burden to me, this Bible. But if I put like 50 or 60 or 100 of them in a backpack, that's a burden. Okay, I won't do that. But no, it wasn't good enough for them. And so they broke it down and they said a burden is food enough equal to the weight of two dried figs Wine enough to fill one shallow goblet. Milk enough for one swallow. Anything past that is a burden. Oil enough to anoint one of the members, one of the appendages of your body. Ink enough to inscribe two letters. It became a burden to keep the law. Did I break it? You know, you're thinking of all the little things that you, it's, it's, you're in bondage to it. God never intended that. Paul's point is, 
But you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There's a relationship where he's your father. Now, before I explain Abba, Father, do you remember when the disciples and Jesus, on the Sabbath, were walking through the grain fields? And they were plucking grain and they were eating it. Now, the law said that when you harvest your fields, you shall leave the corners of the field so that the poor can come in and walk through it and just take it and eat it. They can glean. But since the captivity, some of the Jewish rabbis had gotten so particular as what that means to do work on the Sabbath that they came to the disciples and Jesus in the cornfields and they said, how come your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You know what they meant by it? This is their law. To pick a head of grain they called harvesting. To rub it in your hands is called threshing. And you rub it to take the chaff separated from the wheat. And so when you rub it in your hands, they designated the rubbing as you are, you are threshing. And then to you know, push it up in the air a little bit to let the chaff blow away, you're winnowing. So you are harvesting, you are threshing, and you are winnowing on the Sabbath. You've done all that work just getting a handful of chips, you know, of grain. Wrapped up in detail. They lived under bondage. Of course, the question I always had is, what were the Pharisees doing in the corn fields, in the grain fields on the Sabbath to begin with? You know, it's sort of funny. Jesus is out there with his disciples, and all of a sudden, whoop, they're there. We saw that. Well, what are you guys doing? This is the country. What are you doing out here? Just, just a funny thought. I thought I'd pass it on to you for your perusal. Figure that out. But we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba, by the way, is a term of endearment, a term of intimacy. Uh, If you ever go to Israel, you'll hear the young Jewish children say, Abba, Abba, it's the equivalent of daddy or papa. Also Aramaic, Abba, Papa. So you see the difference? Instead of this bondage relationship of, did I keep all of the laws? I have a a daddy. God is my papa. He's adopted me in his family. He's placed me as an adult child with all of the privileges of being a child of God. And I cry out, Abba. Now this is radical for New Testament Judaism. Because you would never read of New Testament Judaism ever talking about God as Papa. In fact, as you know, we've told you before, they wouldn't even mention the name of God. They would come to the name of God in the scriptures and they wouldn't even pronounce it. They would simply bow their heads and say, Hashem, the name. We'll call God the name. We wouldn't even call him God. But about 70 times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to the Father or God as my Father or your Father gave the disciples permission to use that. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven. You know, I personally believe, now I know some people like to treat God very formally. And I've even heard people say, you should never even pray without saying thee and thou or sing thee and thou. And of course, uh, some translations like to keep the formality when you talk to God because after all, God is unique and different and I respect that. But I personally believe from this and from the way Jesus taught us to pray, And from Galatians 4, where the word Abba is used again, that God has separated walls that divide and wants intimacy with his creation. Even Jesus said to the disciples, I'm not going to even call you servants any longer, but friends. You're my buddies. You're my friends. You call your God your father. I don't think God's into formalities. You know, I'm not into formalities, you can tell. I don't like to be called Reverend Heitzig. In fact, I correct people when they say, Reverend. I look around like, you're talking to me? And I say, don't call me Reverend, just call me Skip. Well, you are a reverend. No, I'm not. The only time, single time, the word reverend is used in Scripture, it applies to God. Who am I to take that title? 
And I don't like formalities anyway. You know, uh, I think of my son when I come home in the afternoon. What if he said, Reverend Heitzig? <laughs> Hello? You call me daddy. I'm your father. You're my son. We have the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, intimacy. I love it. At the same time, in our prayers, we should respect the position of God. I believe in being intimate with God, but I don't believe in being chummy with God to the exclusion of high and holy reverence called the fear of the Lord. And I think you can have a a mixture. You can love him dearly and intimately, but you want to obey him. He's your master. Beautiful relationship. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, of children and heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. And then if you look down in verse 23, the word is used again. We'll go back. Don't worry. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We're adopted now, but we'll have the full rights of adoption later on. We're waiting for that day. In in the Roman culture, uh, it was possible to adopt a child, either a baby or even an adult adoption, while that child's father was still alive. If that happened... Once that adopted child was brought into the new family, he automatically lost all of the privileges, all of the rights, and the inheritance of the previous relationship, but was entitled to all of the new inheritance, privileges, and rights of the new father. Whenever there was a Roman adoption, it was attended to by seven witnesses. The reason there were witnesses is that if the new father kicks the bucket, if he dies, and there's now a dispute as to Where does the inheritance go, as there often is even today? The seven witnesses can attest this kid has been adopted into this family and has all the rights of inheritance. And by the way, though he was adopted, even if there were other children in the family, he had the same right in Roman law as the rest of the children in the family. So the inheritance was equal. And that's sort of the idea when Paul says we are joint heirs with Christ. Sharing in the glory of eternity. Sharing in the privileges because we're adopted sons. Okay, there's mention in verse 17, it says, if indeed we suffer with him, and that's sort of the phrase we don't like to underline in most of our Bibles. We just kind of like to skip over that. But if you look at verse 18, it ties it all together. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It's never popular to talk about suffering, though it is the lot of all humanity. Not only is it not popular to talk about suffering, people are making a theology saying, if you are a child of God, adopted as a child of God, you never have to suffer. You never have to have pain. You never have to have disease, etc. And to take that position, of course, you either have to neglect a whole lot of the Bible or just not read it. Like, in the world, you shall have tribulation. Not, you shall have tribulation, except for you and you and you and you and you. You're going to have it. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you are not suffering for your faith at all, now, in America, of course, we suffer what? They laugh at us? They laugh at our bumper stickers and we go, oh, I've been persecuted. (laughs) I mean, we seldom have gotten beaten up like people in Sudan or lost our lives, but there is still an amount of animosity. We do get persecuted. If you are receiving no animosity, no persecution, I think it's time to question the kind of faith that you live. Because either A, nobody knows you're a Christian and you're doing a great job of being Inspector Clouseau, You know, a secret agent. I'm a Christian, but nobody knows that I'm undercover. (laughs) Or you're not a Christian. But believers suffer. But we suffer with a purpose. 
and we suffer with something in view. The suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Moses chose suffering. Did you know that? Hebrews 11 told us he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater treasure than all the riches of Egypt. This is, again, it's a very unpopular subject. If I were to preach this message when I've been to Africa or been to India, people would track. Here it's kind of like, well, we're children of God. We're going to be kept from this, right? We're going to be kept from, like, persecution because we're American Christians. I believe that persecution is, it already has been coming to our land, but I believe more and more we're going to see the thermostat being turned up for those who truly follow Christ. I think it's inevitable. We may try to escape it, but it's not going to happen if you live a witness. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. If you seek first his kingdom, if you love him immensely, you're going to experience it. You know, I've often wondered as I've looked at certain theologies and certain groups who claim that they should never suffer and they should always be rich and prosperous and never have a care in the world. I've often thought, if aliens existed and, you know, they came to this earth and they came into some of these churches and, like, sat in the back, it would be an interesting thought in and of itself to <laughs> see aliens in church. I thought I've seen a few here, but... If they were to observe us in America, if they might go away thinking that the Bible said, seek first what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink, what you're going to eat, and how comfortable you're going to be in life. And if you have any time left over and it's not too terribly inconvenient, you might want to do something for the kingdom of God. But no, Jesus said we're to seek it first. And if we seek it first, then, as Paul said in verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him, that we might be glorified together. It's part and parcel of it. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. Ooh, we have just enough time to get to a really cool part. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. That's a Greek construction that, to draw a picture, speaks of somebody standing on their tiptoes with their head stretched out like they're looking at something, anticipating something. When I was a kid, my dad used to take us to the Air Force Base in California. We'd watch the air show once a year, and the jets would get out of sight, and then we'd stand on our tiptoes, and we'd look out, and then it'd come over us. That's the idea. All of creation is in eager anticipation of an event. The revealing, that is the full revelation, the apocalypse is the Greek word, apocalypsis, of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to emptiness, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. When God created the heavens and the earth, after every creative act, what did he say? It's good. And it was good. There's only one thing that he said wasn't good, and that was man. In his, in his created state originally, he was good, but he said it's not good that man should be alone. So he made a woman, and that was good too. When evil came is when Adam and Eve fell. And when they fell, this good creation became marred with sin, so that when you look at the world today... Though we're created in the image of God, and though there are traces of glory in all of God's creation, it is marred. It is not what God intended. And you look around, you see what Paul describes here. Look at some of these words he uses. Verse 18, suffering. Verse 20, futility. Verse 21, bondage. Verse 21 again, corruption. That's what we see. We see the second law of thermodynamics. 
entropy. Things are winding down, tending toward decay. Corruption, decay. Because of that, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Why? They're waiting for the, the full redemption, the new kingdom age. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. You know, I'm glad it says that because lately when I get up in the morning, get out of bed, I go, oh, and I didn't do that when I was in my 20s. So now when I groan, I think, it's okay, it's scriptural. <laughs> and the more we live, the more we groan. And the reason we groan is because we know it's coming up ahead. Waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but the hope that is, not, the hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We're waiting for glory. We're waiting for eternity. We have a foretaste of it now. We have a preview of coming attractions. You say, what is that? It's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, that gives you peace, meaning, purpose, a relationship with God. It's a little bit of taste, and you go, oh, man, this is awesome. But it's simply a hint of what's coming ahead, the first fruits. Remember the spies that were sent into the land of Canaan and came back? And Joshua and Caleb brought the first fruits, the grapes on their shoulders, and the people ate the first fruits of the land. That was a preview of coming attractions. Get into the land, it'll be awesome. When we get into God's land, it'll be really awesome. And I want to close by reading to you, in fact, you can turn to Revelation chapter 21. Because I want you to groan even more than you have after tonight. Verse 3 of chapter 21, this is the kingdom age, or this is the eternal state, excuse me. The kingdom age, the millennium is past at this point. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, that's hard to fathom. I remember the first time um, that I was really shook up and wept for the better part of the day. It was the first day of school. The first day of kindergarten. I still remember it like yesterday. It was so traumatic. I'm, I'm in school. I, I don't have my mommy. This is horrible. And I wept. Well, I was a baby. You say, oh, you cried like a baby. Well, I was. I remember other episodes of tears. The, when I heard my brother died, crushed. My father's funeral. Friends who have died. I think of what happened this last week in Colorado, and I watched last Sunday the service up in Colorado on CNN and MSNBC where Franklin Graham preached and others, and I wept during that. I know that the families and the community was weeping even more. God's going to wipe away every tear. We won't use the tear ducts anymore. The lacrimal glands will be not in use. No more tears of anxiety. No more tears of depression. No more tears of poverty. No more tears of sympathy. That's cool. There will be no more death. And can you imagine life without death? 52 million people die every year on planet Earth. There's 5,767,740,000 people alive on planet Earth. So about... Nine out of a thousand deaths. No more death. You'll never have to go to another funeral. Never have to visit another cemetery. Never have to pick out a words and an epitaph to put on a gravestone. No more death. Nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. <laughs> How many aspirin do you think are sold every year? 
I bet you all have some at home. No pain. No broken limbs. No broken hearts. No Alzheimer's diseases. No blindness. No deafness. For the former things have passed away. And you sat on the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. That's why we groan. That's what's coming. Those are the coming attractions. We have just a preview. We've come out of the world. We come into Christian fellowship. We have the peace of God. We have the joy of fellowship with believers. We have the comfort of this fellowship. But it's such a dim reflection of what's coming. You know, that's why Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, when he would instruct his students in in how to represent themselves before people, he said, whenever you speak of heaven and the glories of heaven, let your face light up with the glories of heaven. He said, when you speak of hell, your everyday face will do. (laughs) But there ought to be a difference when we talk about what we groan for. We'll get back next week in Romans where we see not only does creation groan, not only do believers groan, but finally the Spirit of God groans. And we'll discover what that means as we will finish out chapter 8 next time we get together. There was a little boy who was taken into um, a pet store. His parents said, okay, it's your birthday, and uh, you can pick out any, any pet you want. You can't have the alligator, but you can have every other pet, so... He said, well, I want a dog. So he says, okay, you can have any dog you want. So the, guy looked, the little boy looked at all the dogs in the cages and in the boxes, and there was one little dog out of all the other dogs that looked up at the little boy and panted and really wagged its tail quickly. And so the little boy said, oh, I want the one with the happy ending. <laughs> and I think of the paths of life. I think of the path of righteousness that does include suffering and some persecution, etc., but lots of joy and a happy ending. And I think no matter how bad it gets now, no matter what disease I would come under in my life or what would happen to loved ones, because bad things do happen to good people or whatever suffering I'll go through, this is as close as I'll ever get to hell. That's pretty good. But I think of the alternative, the other path. It doesn't have a happy ending. You might have happy episodes up till that point, but the happy ending comes for those who say, Lord, give me life, eternal life. You have resurrection to look forward to. You have no more pain to look forward to. No more suffering. No more tears. No regrets. 